my uh, family and I were headed somewhere. I can't really remember exactly where we were headed. Uh, but we were merging onto the highway when some crazy man came uh, to the right side of us and uh, flew past us and merged like ahead of us. And, and I'm telling you, I was traveling at a good speed. I was not like creeping along. Um, but y- you may have encountered before one of those people. Do you know what I'm talking about? One of those people. Don't be one of those people. Don't be that guy. Years ago, I was sitting at a red light watching the light from the other direction uh, so that I could time it perfectly, and uh, it changed, and I turned. I just went right on cue. It was great, except that my light was still red, and the oncoming traffic got the green light from the other side. So I cut right across the intersection, right in the middle of everything, um, I guess I was that, that guy. Uh, crazy business. Have you ever encountered one of those crazy people on the road? I get road rage. I don't know about you, but I just get mad at drivers. I'd get mad at myself if I was another driver. Um, it might have been me if I cut you off at that intersection. I'm sorry. We all look at others sometimes and we think, what is wrong with them? Um, they're one of those people. But we are all those people. Sometimes we live completely clueless lives. Sometimes everyone else knows that we're wrong, but we just can't seem to get with it and understand that we are. When deep down we know we're wrong sometimes, and yet we stick to our guns. We fail to relinquish and let down our guard. It's crazy. We've all been one of those people. And today we're going to see... The rejection of Jesus continue, even though Jesus emphatically shouts the truth. His opposition was strong. Jesus addressed that regularly, and Jesus uh, taught openly about his origin along with what was coming, what was future. Jesus knew God's plan. The people knew their plan, and they were those people. Innate in human nature is a compelling desire to always be right. It's damnable. Now, why do I say it that strongly? Just watch these first century Jews in John 7. They refused to trust in Jesus Christ, God's Son, because they refused to concede their corruption. They wanted uh, to believe that they had Jesus completely figured out, and their pride damned them in the end. We can hold on to being right so strongly And blindly that we lose grip on the glaring truth that is right in front of us. Human nature infected with sin is delusional. So many people are confused about Jesus. So many people are are totally confused. There are over 7 billion people on planet earth. Most of which are confused about Jesus. Even many who consider themselves Christians are confused. Confusion is inside and it's outside of the church. Here we are in the middle of the Feast of Booze. Jesus was still teaching in the temple. In verses 25 and 26, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Back in verse 20, the crowd appeared to be unaware of any death threats, probably since they were not from Jerusalem but were Uh, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so they were unaware of the hateful leaders. 
and how hateful their plots really were. In verse 25, the people of Jerusalem were aware of the death threats. And they were confused about that. If the authorities opposed Jesus so much and they hated him so much, enough to want him dead, then why aren't they silencing him immediately? The authorities referred to in verses 25 and 26 are probably what's known as the Sanhedrin, uh, which was a type of Jewish supreme court of the day, very powerful men, composed of chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, and other leaders. They could have arrested Jesus, but instead they just stood by and said nothing. And that confused the people. It led them to ask the very dangerous question, do the leaders actually think that this guy is the chosen Messiah? Verse 30 explains why the authorities did nothing. And we'll get to that in a little bit, and I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, But from a human standpoint, they were probably stunned. Stunned. I don't know what to do with this guy. They didn't know what to do. Last year in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a man told a police officer that he had hit and killed a deer and that he put it in his trunk and that he was on his way to take it home to eat it uh, for dinner. And so when the officer opened the trunk, the deer actually revived and uh, stumbled out and fell onto the blacktop and then sprinted off into the woods. Um, Check out the footage on YouTube. It's actually really interesting. Sometimes deer are hit and they're stunned. They don't know what to do. So they just stand there sometimes. They might even appear dead. I think that's what happened to these Jews. They were hit with the reality so strong of who Jesus was and what he was doing that I think it just stunned them. They they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. They were just in this stupor. They couldn't refute him. They couldn't outwit him. They couldn't rival him. Even though he taught what they considered heresy and blasphemy in the temple, they said nothing to silence him. That is odd. That is odd. The people said in verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. Now that seems pretentious to me. We know more about this guy than what the authorities do. We know where he's from. They thought they had Jesus figured out. Nazareth, right? Galilee, right? A, a, A common Jewish family, right? We know this guy. We know where he's from and who he is. And this is reminiscent of John 6, 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, when they said that uh, no one will know where the Messiah comes from, uh, it confirms that they're confused about this whole Messiah business. Apparently, some rabbis taught at the time, that the Christ would be unknown, largely unknown, until he shows up uh, mysteriously, kind of out of nowhere, and appears to liberate Israel. And that view was somewhat controversial. Not everybody embraced that view, as you can see in John 7, 42. Many took a more scriptural approach, believing the Messiah would arise from the line of David in Bethlehem. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament messianic prophecy. The evidence is overwhelming when you start to dig into the prophecies fulfilled by him. 
And for the sake of time, let's look at three as they pertain to John 7. Turn quickly to Isaiah 11.1 in your Bibles. Isaiah 11.1, almost in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 11.1. And it gives a, a messianic prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah 11.1 says. It's very short. There shall come, I'll just read a portion of it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now the stump of Jesse, that is very, very considerable. Jesse was David's father. So we know that this Messiah is coming in the line of David. Um, Now flip over to Isaiah 16, verse 5. Isaiah 16, verse 5. It says this, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The house of David is critical for the Messiah. Now just listen to Hosea 11.1, another direction. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The Messiah, God's son, would come out of Egypt. Now let me ask you this question. Where did Joseph and Mary take Jesus as a baby to live until Herod died? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Last one, turn to Micah 5.2. Almost in the New Testament. If you hit Matthew and go back towards Genesis a few books, you get to Micah 5.2. Turn to Micah 5.2. I want you to see it in your your, uh, Bibles. Micah 5.2, it says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. The eternal ruler of Israel, the Messiah, would arise from Bethlehem. This was an Old Testament prophecy. Now, back to John 7, 27. How could people say no one would know where the Messiah was coming from? How could they say that? They really didn't have Jesus figured out. Jesus was in the line of David. Jesus came out of Egypt. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Galilee. But there was so much more to his story that they didn't know. Now, I learned something really fascinating I want to share with you. I I find this really interesting. Israel kept meticulous genealogies or ancestries through the centuries. These genealogies were kept in the temple. And if there was a question about the origin of Jesus, the leaders could have searched his lineage in the temple records. And as far as we know, they didn't look. Now, that's odd to me. Why didn't they look? Why not mention his lineage to the people and go look right in the temple? They had access to it. Joseph and likely Mary were from the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was accessible and relevant information. It gets even more intriguing. In 70 AD, Titus the Roman attacked Jerusalem, killing hundreds of thousands of Jews and burned the temple to the ground. The temple genealogies were destroyed. Now understand why that's important. These genealogies were essential for establishing Jewish priests and Levites. 
After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there has, um, there has been no legitimate way to authenticate the family lines of priests and Levites, in effect abolishing the priesthood and Levitical office. This is an insurmountable problem for modern-day Judaism. But there's an even bigger problem. With no genealogies, it is impossible to validate the Davidic line of any proposed Messiah post-70 A.D., That is considerable. The last probable Messiah with an extensive genealogy from the line of David was Jesus of Nazareth. Read Matthew 1 and Luke 3. You ever wonder why those lists of the Bible names are important? Now you know. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus can save you from your sins. Modern-day Judaism is a dead religion until it recognizes Jesus as the Christ. No other Messiah can or will come. It can't be proven. Though many are confused about Jesus, you don't have to be. You can believe in Him. You can trust in Him. And that's what Jesus Himself is calling you to do. So many people refuse to listen to the loud and clarifying voice of Jesus Christ. They refused to listen. In the last moments before his crucifixion, during his trial, the high priest asked Jesus this question. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And when I hear that, I'm like, were you not listening to the man all along when he's teaching about his identity? Now, did he come right out and say, I am the Christ, the Son of God, in those exact words? I don't think so. But his teaching affirmed that all along the way. Up to his death, many still refused to really hear Jesus. Verse 28 says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. The word proclaimed is a loud declaration. Jesus is shouting. He's shouting at this point. He's shouting in the temple area. And yes, Jesus did shout on occasion. He shouted in verse 28 with irony. You know me? And you know where I come from? Now, that could be a statement or that could be a question. The ESV has it in a question. I think most other translations have it as a statement. But either way, it's sarcastic. You think you know where I come from? You think you have me figured out? They had no idea where he was really from. And he continued to shout, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and in him or and him you do not know. Jesus didn't come of himself. He didn't come of his own accord. He didn't come of his own volition. It was unified intra-Trinitarian sending. Jesus said he came in his father's name to do the will of the one who sent him. Jesus said he himself is true in verse 18. And then he said that God is true and that God sent him. Look at verse 29. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus had already taught this. John 5, the father who sent me or him who sent me or I can do nothing of my own. I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. And he said, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And the similar language is used in John 6 and John 7. Jesus wasn't vague. Not only that, he told the most religious people, the most devout, the most scholarly in Jerusalem, in the temple of all places that they did not know God and that he did, and that God sent him. 
That's stunning. And he was right, but they didn't like it. Even though he shouted, even though he was clear-cut, they still refused to listen. Many failed to listen to Jesus. I mean, to really hear what he's saying and where he's going with it, but you can listen. You can listen to the loud voice of Jesus declaring to you the truth about himself. In all of this, so many people fail to see God's sovereign control over every detail of history. Verse 30 is so huge for this. It says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. It's odd. Why didn't they seize him right away? He was a major threat to the religious superpowers. Why not lay a hand on him right away, get rid of him as quickly as possible? It wasn't a lack of desire. It wasn't a lack of power. It wasn't even lack of opportunity. Verse 30 gives us the reason. His hour had not yet come. Well, what does that mean? It means there was a specific time in God's sovereign will and plan that he would be delivered, tried, crucified, and the hour had not yet arrived. His arrest would come by God's watch, by God's timetable. God's sovereign will repressed their malicious hands. And in a precise time, God would withdraw his preventing common grace, turning them over to their sin to carry out their evil desires. Acts 2.23 says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and that he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Same thing in in Acts 4.27. The Jews, Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod, all did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. God willed the crucifixion of his son prior to men willing it. And they chose to sin as they chose to sin. They were carrying out God's sovereign will. Now, I mention these passages to show that God guides every detail of history right down to the millisecond that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, flogged, crucified, buried, raised, revealed, and ascended. God never guesses. God never waits with curiosity God works all things according to the counsel of his will, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1. That is what verse 30 means. God controls details. God runs the show. God governs time. Their choice to arrest Jesus was subject to the sovereign will and plan of God. Jesus had an hour, and until that hour came, no one would lay a hand on him. Never ignore or disregard little statements like that. Sometimes we take the statements of Scripture and we kind of toss them off. But it says his hour had not yet come. That is huge. Verse 30 makes no sense if God is not sovereign. Though God's sovereignty is complex, though it is difficult to comprehend, even seemingly undesirable at times, it is absolutely unmistakable and written all over the place in the Scriptures. This is one of the marvelous attributes of our eternal God that comforts us. We can actually take comfort from the fact that God is in control. God ordains the timing of our lives. He directs your life according to his purposes. If you really get verse 30, 
Its truth will comfort you as a child of God through 10,000 difficult circumstances and struggles and fears. Every detail of your life is subject to the sovereign will of a loving and tender and gracious heavenly Father who loves you and wants His best for you right down to your last day. Did you know that your days are numbered in the sovereign plan of God? So no disease, no disaster, or disability will override God's good plan and timing for your life. Listen to Job 14.5. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. God has determined your exact number of days. Your exact number of months. He has appointed our limits, our end on earth. Uh, listen to Psalm 139.16. This is David. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. Before David was born, before he lived even one day, every one of his days were planned and written by God. Jesus died 2,000 years ago because the Trinity wanted him to die at that precise moment. It was planned before the foundation of the world and accomplished in God's perfect timing. Now, why is this comforting to us as God's children? First off, the cross was not an accident. The cross was planned to redeem you, to bring you to God again through Jesus Christ. God wanted you, not because of something inside of you, but because of his good pleasure. And he brought you through Jesus Christ and, and brought you through the cross that was planned. It was not an accident. The cross accomplished and sealed your salvation forever. That's comforting. But let me ask you a question in hopes that you can make the connection theologically here and experience more hope from this day on in God. If God is not sovereign, he's lacking complete control in verse 30. If there is some equal force or power that can actually derail God's plans and intentions, what comfort would Romans 8.28 be for you? Here's the verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If God's sovereign plan can be thwarted in any way, Romans 8.28 cannot be true. It couldn't be true for Jesus prior to the cross and it cannot be true for you. And all the bad things in your life are therefore random and meaningless and carried out for your harm under the nose of a God who is powerless to stop them from happening. However, God is sovereign according to his word. And though we have many whys that are left unanswered now, God assures us that every tragedy, every heartbreaking circumstance, every event that we prefer not happen in our life is filled with meaning and purpose and will absolutely work for God's good and our good under the loving and gracious hand of our heavenly Father who has a tender and good hand, all for his glory and our greatest joy in his glory. That's a promise from God 
who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. This heartbreak is not meaningless. I have ordained it to reveal something about myself to you. I have caused things to be this way so that I may reveal not only my justice and my wrath against evil, but my goodness and my grace in your life as I redeem you and keep you until the end. God purposed the most egregious sin of history, the crucifixion of his son, to accomplish his magnificent plot of redemption. So many people find that unsettling. God being in control, unsettling. And some try to argue away the sovereignty of God. God, for many people, is not in control. And my question is, if God is not in control, who is in control? Who then do I trust that I know can come through for me and not have his plan derailed? Who is in control? It is a frightening theology where God is not sovereign over all things. Evil makes no sense in a system where God is not sovereign over all things. There is no peace and no comfort and no assurance of salvation in that system where God is not sovereign. William Hendrickson wrote this, Though surrounded by danger, Jesus was in reality free from all danger because it was not the will of God that he should die at this time. That is precious. That is precious to me. Is it precious to you? God is in control of the details. I remember Jesse Strong, my roommates, a younger brother who died in Iraq, serving his country. Before he left, he said, I am bulletproof until God calls me home. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what, Jesus wasn't going to get hit by some renegade stone. He was going to go to the cross at the right timing that God had for him. It's precious. Believe verse 30. Be comforted by verse 30. Jesus trusted fully in the sovereign will and plan of God, and so should you, and so should I, because our God is awesome. Our God is awesome. So many people believe in Jesus, but not unto salvation. There is a faith that doesn't lead to salvation. It's a spurious faith. It's a false faith. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him, They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, my question is, is that saving faith? It could be, but it appears to be faith once more founded in his miracles and not his truth, like the faith of those in John 6. They wanted more bread. They wanted another miracle. They were right. No one could do miracles like Jesus, but were they repentant? But one of... Um, one of the people who studies the, the miracles of Jesus, be that type of person who studies the miracles of Jesus and finds in them that Jesus is who he said he was. He is God's son. He is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. And then after you come to him in that way, then repent of your sins and trust in him for your salvation. Be a person who finds eternal life and joy in Jesus. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus created quite a buzz in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and chief priests were concerned. Almost all of the chief priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees and Pharisees were bitter rivals. They did not like each other. They were not friends. And, uh, and yet they conspired together for the demise of Jesus Christ. So they're working together on a project that apparently they both really, really believe in. 
That's peculiar. I guess they united over one thing, the death of Jesus, God's son. Together they deployed the temple officers to go and arrest Jesus like he was a criminal, a common criminal. Well, Jesus spoke again, and we're not exactly sure who he was speaking to at this point, whether it was the officers that came to him, whether it was the leaders and officers or all the people. In verse 35, the Jews responded, so it's probable or probably uh, safe to say that it was the Jews who he was addressing, and his words ring. They ring out like a gunshot. And so many people missed their opportunity for a beautiful Savior. And that's what happened with these people. They missed Jesus. Kids, uh, kids in here, have you ever been separated from your parents? Maybe at the mall you lose them or at a public place? That's terrifying. That is terrifying for a little child not to be able to find their parents. It's an awful feeling. I still break out in cold sweats when I don't know where my mom is. Just kidding, I don't. But, you know, it's, maybe it will come that I will someday. But what Jesus says in these two verses is distressing. He says, listen to this. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That is haunting. That is absolutely haunting. Let that sink in for a moment. A time will come when people will seek Jesus and he will not be found. And at that point, all hope is gone. He's talking about his death. Soon he would be crucified and then he would return to his father in glory. And the Jews would look for the coming of the Messiah, but he would never come because he already had It would be too late, no hope. Where Jesus goes, they could not follow because they rejected Jesus. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. So no Jesus, no Father, and no eternal life. Heaven has no room for people who finally reject Jesus. I want to read for you several disturbing sentences. This was, when I was reading this sermon, John MacArthur's sermon, I was like, whoa, that's heavy. He explained verse 34 as it relates to hell. This is what MacArthur said. Hell is, after all, itself truth discovered too late. Hell is also eternal regret without remedy. Everlasting remorse without hope. Hell is not where Christ is forgotten. It is where he is unavailable. Imagine For eternity, knowing you need a savior, knowing that you just need someone to come and rescue you from the wrath of God and no one is to be found. And you know that Jesus is that person, but for eternity, you know he will not come and save me. There is no chance this is hell forever. That will shake you to the core. How terrifying it is to look for a Savior at a time when he can no longer be found. That is unbearable. Christ is still available for you. If you don't know Christ this morning, come now. Do not wait. Do not wait to get serious about your faith. Do not wait to be serious about following Jesus. There will come a time when you will know and everyone will know that he is the Lord and Savior of the universe. They will see him in his glory and it will be too late for many. How beautiful Jesus is now. 
how beautiful Jesus will be 10 trillion years down the road when we are enjoying him. And he fills all those who have delighted in him now, forever. That is just the best possible news you could hear in the summer of 2014. Please do not miss your one opportunity. Be the kind of person that makes haste to the cross of Jesus Christ. The sad truth is so many people just don't get Jesus. Now, I don't tell a lot of jokes in my sermons, as you probably know. We have our little funny moments, but I'm just not a joke teller. It's not my style, all right? But here's one for you. Here it goes. It's hard to explain puns to a kleptomaniac because he always takes things literally. (laughs) See, now I guarantee at least 75% of you have no idea what I just said. And if you're like me, it took me a while to... What in the world? I looked it up on these jokes for intelligent people and I'm like, I don't get that. I, I, I just don't get... But I get it now and I think that's hilarious. Now, don't feel bad if you don't get it. Perhaps you've been that guy before where everybody else gets the joke, but you don't. You don't know what everybody is laughing at. It's not fun. It's very awkward. And, and you might bring the old customary polite laugh. You're like, <laughs> I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. It's so awkward. It's usually not enjoyable to be outside of the loop. And we've all been that guy. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They don't know what he's saying. They have no idea what Jesus is saying. They mentioned the dispersion, which referred to the Jewish people scattered throughout the the Roman Empire. Not all Jews lived in Palestine in the first century. So perhaps Jesus will go and teach the Greeks since he failed here in Jerusalem with the Jews. Ha ha ha. Go ahead, Jesus. Go somewhere else where they might accept you. They They just don't get it. And then they ask the question in verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They're missing it. Totally out of the loop, and the harsh truth is, many will look, but not find. Many will find Jesus insufficient, undesirable, irrelevant, but many will finally realize their need when it's too late. This is the powerful effect of sin. It blinds, it kills, it condemns. Sin keeps people in miserable darkness, wondering why a lot of other people are joyful in the light. You don't have to be one of those people. Hope in Christ. Be a person that relinquishes your pride and worldly wisdom, who relinquishes being right in exchange for being made right. When I was younger, I rode on the bus with a kid named Matt. One day I said on the bus that his birthday was in April. My birthday's in April. I wanted his birthday to be in April. It wasn't. So he disagreed with me naturally. But I pressed the issue. No, it is in April. And I think I even pushed Matt up against the side of the, of the bus. 
And wham, out of nowhere, his little fist of fury popped me in the nose. I started to bleed. I'm like, oh, man. Sometimes we hold on to our ignorance as if ignorance was virtuous. When the obvious truth needs to crack us across the face and wake us up to the reality of Jesus Christ. Don't be one of those people. Stubborn till the end. Refusing to relinquish you in order to gain Christ. How Jesus extends the call of the gospel to you and says, rejoice in me. Come to me. Don't be there in your ignorance, holding on to your life, wanting to preserve your life, when in reality you're losing your life forever. Come to me. Trust in me. I will not let you down. You don't want a fist of fury in your face. Renounce you to gain Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and what you have given us in Jesus Christ. Um, How much we have to rejoice in because of your goodness. And I pray, God, that Jerusalem church will be struck with the truth of Jesus, that we wouldn't be those people who just write him off, or even those people who, who like Jesus, but don't passionately give over all of our lives to Jesus. I pray that we're all in, because you have to be all in to follow Jesus. And God, when we struggle with sin, which is every day, remind us of your great grace and your forgiveness that comes through Christ. He is on his way to the cross. We're in John 7. There's a lot of ground we got to cover to get to the cross. But what a glorious cross it is. And, and the whole scene is escalating. It's, it, uh, the, the tension is heightened. And we're going to a glorious Roman cross where all of our sin was paid for. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.